I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. It's the week beginning Monday, the 6th of November from Tortoise. Welcome to the news meeting. The unfolding humanitarian crisis in Nepal as rescuers there are desperately trying to save victims of a strong earthquake. The death toll is more than 150 and it's likely to rise. Airstrikes intensifying in Gaza as Israel reports progress in its ground attack, saying it's now cut Gaza in two. Mr. Trump, you're looking forward to testifying today? I am. So while Israel is being attacked, while Ukraine is being attacked, while inflation is eating our country alive, I'm down here. I'm joined here by Tortoise editors Basha Cummings and Giles Wattel. Basha. Hello. How are you? Good, thank you. Giles. Very well, thanks. Good, despite the world conspiring to make us miserable. Um, but I'm also joined by Ian Golding. Professor Golding, um, I, call, I don't think I've ever called you Professor Golding, no, but it felt great. Respectful. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Ian is the Professor of Globalization and Development at Oxford and also the founder of the Oxford Martin School. And actually, over the years, we've ended up having conversations when I suppose I've been caught in the tumble dryer of news and not seeing the big developments and changes. And what you do, Ian, is really think about those. The last time I think we spoke was in the summer about your book, Age of the City. And so actually, before we get into things, I just wanted to ask you a question about what you made of Suella Bravman's comments about homelessness. I'll tell you why. We've tried to make sure that this news meeting is different from the news meetings that newsrooms I've been at before. We invite people like you in to check our thinking, make sure that we aren't slipping into some kind of groupthink, but also make sure that listeners can leave a voicemail, write in. And Michael Holloway wrote in. Take a listen to this. Hello, news meeting team. Government statistics show that we have now reached record levels of people living in temporary accommodation. And this is likely to increase over a coming winter that will again see eye-wateringly high energy bills. If you walk around any UK city, this will demonstrate the sheer number of people sleeping rough on the streets. The government's solution to this is to propose more restrictive laws on homeless people using tents and a crackdown on begging. So Ella Bravman recently tweeted, We cannot allow our streets to be taken over by rows of tents occupied by people, many of them from abroad, living on the streets as a lifestyle choice. With other major developed nations such as Japan having homeless levels near zero, the media should make more effort in exposing the scale of this crisis, which is an inhumane political choice. So how do you deal with this particular issue of homelessness? I think that was an extremely inhumane comment that she made, uh, which flies in the face of all the evidence of why people are homeless uh, and suggesting that they're there because that's a lifestyle choice. In other words, they could have a home. Uh, they could be elsewhere, but they prefer to be on the street. Uh, I think is deeply insensitive. 
The main reason people are homeless is because there are not enough homes, affordable homes, homes where people can live because people have been thrown out of mental health facilities due to the closure of community care in, of different forms and particularly mental. Uh, there's a whole discussion and need for urgent uh, action on drugs, uh, but the majority of people are simply homeless because they cannot afford to live in homes and they're being evicted by their landlords or they can't afford it. So uh, I think it's government pushing the burden of society, uh, pushing the, what government should be doing onto individuals, uh, and it's not fact-based. Uh, cities are the place to be. People are homeless in cities because the prospect of something happening positive in your life is greater than if you're homeless in uh, the countryside, you might get a job, you might get a, uh, into a homeless shelter, you might get care or get looked after in a hospital. Uh, so they're the right place to be, uh, but they need to be addressed not only by cities themselves that cannot afford and don't actually often have the regulatory space to solve the problem, they cannot create hospital spaces, they cannot create care spaces, they cannot create affordable homes. It needs to be solved as a national priority, and it's not just London, of course. We re read, too, at the end of last week about the crisis that Liverpool is now facing, for example. It's a global problem. The reason the Japanese have such low homelessness is because they tackle it. <laughs> Ian, thank you. Um, let's try and get at the stories that are at the top of our minds, either top of the headlines or should be. Long story short, Basha, what do you want to talk about today? Well, there's two options. I, I, I tested them on Giles and I was asking which one was funnier. Icarus Fried... Or Sam Bankman not freed, <laughs> and this is—is is it possible that the sub editors are going to send you back on both of those headlines? Headline writing has never been my um, my forte. It's it's the conviction of Sam Bankman freed. Ian, <laughs> there are really two topics that I thought uh, were newsworthy that came up at the very end of last uh, last week. Uh, <laughs> apart from all the, the big the big things that we all know about uh, and which we'll talk about. Uh, the one is this extraordinary shift in attitudes in the UK uh, towards migration. And suddenly, uh, the population of the UK being far ahead of the politicians and saying they prefer more migrants. Uh, at a time of record migration, uh, net migration now over 600,000, double of what it was uh, in the immediate pre-Brexit period. So Brexit's totally backfired. There are many, there's double the amount of net migrants in the UK uh, if, that, if, if the aim of Brexit was to keep migrants out. Uh, but people seem very happy with the situation and want more. So that's, I think, newsworthy. Uh, the second thing, which, you know, as, as, an, as an aging Beatles fan I just love, is the creation of a new Beatles record 60 years after uh, it was first voiced. And if you haven't, if the listeners haven't seen uh, the video, it's quite extraordinary. And it's the use of artificial intelligence. And that's what I find so interesting. I I'm sure there is a serious and meaningful take we could have on the video. <laughs> but actually, the, the joy of it is just how playful it is. Yes. It it's this idea that they've brought you're reminded about what the Beatles were, which was, you know, mischief and play and fun. And, and melody, unlike the Rolling Stones. Charles, <laughs> <laughs> um, what's yours? To ban or not to ban the decision facing Sir Mark Rowley, Met Commissioner, before Armistice Day, which is next Saturday. This is the protests in London this weekend? Yes, and protests in, in the past few weeks. Let's focus on protests in London. Before we do it, can you just catch us up, yeah. Charles, on what's going on yeah, I feel in we Israel? Should. We should because there's so much every day, every night, isn't there, that we, we kind of 
we've got to uh, put it in that context. So um, the Israeli Defense Forces claim to have hit almost as many targets last night, 450 years on any night since October the 7th. Uh, a Reuters correspondent in Gaza described it as one of the most intense bombardments of the war so far. 9,770 Gazans are dead, according to Gazan health officials. Um, Tony Blinken has made surprise visits all over the region overnight, um, and there's video of him putting on a flak jacket. I'm not quite sure which of his stopovers that was. He Israel has repeated its position: no ceasefire as long as the and no talk of ceasefire as long as the hostages remain hostages. They cut communications again to Gaza. Um, while we're about it, um, the the current tally of Israeli soldiers killed so far, according to the IDF, is 31. And they claim to have killed another senior uh, Hamas figure, Jamal Musa, overnight. Um, and the CIA chief, as well as Blinken, is is in the region. Not just that, but a, an American nuclear sub for the first time. So, so all this is happening. But um, without meaning to be disrespectful to any of the participants, I see that as incremental compared with um, the aspect that I want to talk about, which is the decision facing Sir Mark Rowley. So what's actually happening this weekend? I'm confused. There is a planned pro-Palestinian demonstration in London on Saturday at which at least 70,000 people are expected. And then Sunday, Remembrance Sunday at 11 o'clock, there will be the climax of the wreath laying and two minutes of silence. The question is whether the Saturday demonstration should be allowed on what is Armistice Day, November the 11th. Grant Shapps has said it's unconscionable to consider it. Um, Sunak's latest statement on it, uh, the, the idea of holding it on the same day is that it would be provocative and disrespectful. However, at the moment, the plan is for it to go ahead. There have been, as you know, other big uh, pro-Palestinian demonstrations on most Saturdays since uh, uh, October the 7th. Uh, Sir Mark Rowley, the Met Commissioner, has to decide between now and then whether or not to ban it. What do you think? Uh, there are just two points that I wanted to make uh, in relation to the, the this decision that he has to make and all the, all the other um, pro-Palestinian demonstrations that he's had to police. Uh, one is, and I'm channeling a conversation that we had here at Tortoise, an internal one on Friday that was fascinating and involved people who know much more about this than I do, that anybody who underestimates the strength of feeling in Britain's Muslim communities, plural, over the way the conflict is unfolding and the casualties does so at their peril. This is an extremely tense time for intercommunal relations in this country, never mind everywhere else in the world. And that therefore, these kinds of protests should be allowed as a release valve, if nothing else. I mean, you can very easily make the case that they should be allowed anyway. This is a free society. The, the problem is if you draw a straight, a straight parallel between Hamas and ISIS, for example, are you therefore um, paying lots of police overtime in order to let the equivalent, to enable the equivalent of pro-ISIS protests? 
Uh, I, I but they wouldn't say that because they'd say actually people are, are marching to support the Palestinians. They're not. They may or yes. may not be marching. People have different views on Hamas. Absolutely. But but the interesting thing is what this comes down to is not uh, clear and easily graspable points of principle. You have to uh, stop, observe and listen to what is said. And I started making two columns in my notebook about what, as far as I can tell, police, reasonable police should allow and what they should not and what should lead to arrests. So, so what's in the columns? So <laughs> they're rather short, but you feel free to add in the OK column. Ceasefire now. I, I don't. I, that's a perfectly reasonable position. In the not okay column, river to the sea. We know that already a, a Labour MP has been suspended for using that phrase, even though in the context he claimed of uh, Israelis and Palestinians living together between the river and the sea. And also, much more obviously inflammatory, or perhaps not much more, but also inflammatory. Let's keep the world clean with a picture of an Israeli flag in a bin. But the the fact that we're at this point where police monitoring protests are having to listen out and, as was noted to us, if they can, listen to uh, non-English as well as English shouts and calls and, and, and statements. Basha, what do you think? I think the idea of holding a protest on a Saturday at the same weekend as Remembrance Sunday is not problematic. For, for many reasons, but the main ones being that my understanding as somebody who's had people go on these marches, friends, family, these are not pro-Hamas marches. They are, they are marches to support a humanitarian issue in Gaza um, where you have fringe elements and extremists you have on many marches, on many political marches. So therefore, I think characterizing the whole thing is as a hate march, as, as Suella Bravman did, is inaccurate. I also think that there's a bigger point here, which is, well, what is Remembrance Sunday? As I have understood it throughout you know, my my time living in this country, it's about remembering all victims, about all service people. It's not exclusive, and therefore I don't know why the principle of remembrance and thoughtfulness around conflict doesn't extend to one that we're seeing happening right now. Ian? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, if these marches are on separate days, um, I think the march on Palestine should be allowed to go ahead. That's why we're in the UK, because uh, we we believe in the right to peaceful protest. If it becomes unpeaceful or it breaks the law, uh, that needs to be dealt with by the law. Th there's an interesting thing here in the conversation that Giles and I had at the end of last week with a a handful of people just trying to understand what was happening within Muslim communities, supporters of Palestinians, people really concerned about what's happening in Gaza. It was really chastening, I've got to say really upsetting, because what was described to us was firstly this point that the Muslim communities of the UK, in this person's experience, had never been as united, that this was galvanizing people, radicalizing people in a way that 9-11 Iraq, even those things had not done, worrying. But the second was that organizations like Hizbutaria, those organizations that have argued for a caliphate, they look at what's happening, whether it's the discourse in the political classes or the coverage in the mainstream media and say, You've taken sides. You've taken sides with Israel and you're not sympathetic or understanding of the plight of our Muslim brothers and sisters. And what happens then is that spills either into public protests in the streets, hence 
Charles's point, which is you need protest as a safety valve for that form of expression, but also very possibly in a form of much more radical or violent uh, extremism. And we're underestimating the risk of that. Um, and I don't know how, Ian, you think about that, the capacity to try and create some middle ground on an issue where there's so much fear, anger, and frankly, righteousness. Yeah, I think uh, that's why this conflict is particularly disturbing, because one can only see it leading to a cycle of more radicalism. Uh, and we've seen that in the past, how it spills over around the world. Um, and I, I think it's inevitable with two groups of people that don't believe in the right of the other to exist. Um, you know, what we have in Hamas is a group that doesn't believe in the right of Israel to exist. And what we have in the Israeli cabinet, particularly the right wing of the cabinet, uh, is a group that doesn't believe in a two-state solution. Uh, that believes that it has to be an Israeli state. And 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 that's an irreconcilable thing. And, and we realize how accidents of history, you know, the, the, we got so close to a two-state solution. And Hamas and the right wing did their best to stop it. Um, and and now they, this, and I think it's a terrible thing to, to say, but they, both sides are, are extremely radical. All right, we are going to get to the enormous tastelessness of the news here. You're going to make it gear change from Gaza and the right to protest to Sam Bankman-Fried. Not freed. Not freed. <laughs> See what you did there, Basha. Yes. Um, okay, tell, just, the, the, I used to be really, really into this story. And then weirdly, <laughs> by the time it actually came to court, I sort of zoned out. Yeah. So what happened? So Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of Alameda Research and FTX, one is a fund, the other is a crypto exchange. He was in 2022, so last year, he was arrested and he was charged on seven counts of fraud relating to the FTX bit of his uh, business by the Southern District of New York, wire fraud, conspiracy, securities fraud, money laundering. And I think everyone sort of followed the rise and the fall but not the conclusion, which is why I'm pitching it. The Guardian characterised this trial as a, a sort of battle of, as most trials are, as a kind of battle of narratives about whether he's this sort of crypto-criminal mastermind or he's just an unlucky maths nerd. If you followed the, the sort of story of the trial, the witnesses that were presented, it it had so many storylines going on. There's the kind of the family end, you know, his parents were involved. His ex-girlfriend was was the key witness, really, because she had been running Alameda Research. Um, so there, it, there, it had this kind of soap opera element to it. Um, and she gave evidence against him. She gave evidence against him. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, he was her boss. They were having a relationship. He tried to blame her for a lot of what went wrong. But she did a deal uh, and and gave evidence against him, as did a couple of of his sort of close friends uh, and colleagues. Then, then what came up in the trial was also this sort of story about crypto, how how it's unfolded, how the pandemic, how we saw this kind of huge rush to buy crypto in the pandemic, how it then crashed, uh, 
And then also, interestingly, a kind of philosophical question about whether the ends justify the means and about utilitarianism and a particular kind of philanthropy where you sort of apply a mathematical approach to doing good. And so, interestingly, the trial sort of had to grapple with this idea of whether uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's sort of approach to good in the world somehow would explain how he had... Uh, allowed a seven billion dollar hole uh, in the company's finances. The thing I don't understand about this story is what is fraud in the world of crypto? What is fraud when it feels like the whole enterprise is kind of bullshit? In this particular case, it is that, as I understand it, and it, you know, it's it's complicated. FTX had promised the people who had bought uh, crypto within that exchange, that their money wouldn't be used for other things, that it was safe and insured as a pot. Separately, he was running a trading company, Alameda Research, making bets. And as they were starting to fail, he would use the money from FTX to fund what he was doing over in this other company. And he was doing that for a couple of years um, and created this $7 billion hole. The question at the trial was, did he know about that? Was he aware that that was what was happening and that he was committing this fraud? Or was he this sort of tech visionary nerd who engaged too late, didn't realise really what was happening uh, because he was sort of consumed by these bigger questions of good and evil? All right, Ian, <laughs> help us out this here because I have to say I find this one really difficult I can't help feeling really sympathetic to Sam Bankman Freed because I think to myself, okay, you've obviously done massive things wrong, but the whole system is wrong. Uh, I think that um, that Sam was all three of what you've suggested. I mean, he he was uh, just a hyper nerd. Uh, if, if, if that's not an abusive comment, you know, he's just totally focused on on the maths. And I don't think he was on top of it. I think it was a fraud because he was using customers money for things other than intended, that is lending to another company, which the customers didn't think they were doing. Um, and he also was doing it. And this sort of has an Oxford connection, unfortunately, uh, as part of this effective altruism mm -hmm. thing, which started in a group I actually supported in Oxford, <laughs> the effective, uh, the future vanity yeah. Institute. And the, and, and um, um, group of people there that started effective altruism, and he was promising great support for them. So uh, it and the idea there is that which which I opposed very strongly, I, I should say, and had many arguments. It doesn't really matter how you earn your money as long it's sort of like an old tithing system, really. As long as you give um, you know ten or twenty percent of it away or a share of it away to good causes, uh, and so it sort of justifies people. It's like it related to 80,000 hours, which is sort of an offshoot of that, justifies people earning money in different ways. And I think he also believed that. Yeah. I, think he, I think he believed that somehow he was doing good yeah. um, in the end. Uh, and and um, so the effect of altruism seen and, uh, and the people associated with that have had rather a crash landing as a result. That definitely <laughs> played a big role in the trial. And actually, the FT uh, characterized it really well, where they said that he had, um, you know, whether you rob a bank 
to play the lottery, you win and you feed that money back yeah. into the bank, it's still a crime in, in, our, in the way that we operate. So he was thinking, yes, I might be bending the rules here, but in the end there will be a greater good. And that's what these witnesses were saying, that he thought lying and deception in the short term were not in them in and of themselves wrongs because the, the end result would be a greater good. Uh, the law doesn't see it that way. Yeah. Charles, what do you think? I think it's very sweet of you to evince some sympathy for Sam Bankman-Fried. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just jealous of his hair. <laughs> he's cut it for court. Yeah, the, he's... He's that almost was, unrecognizable. That was part of the court discussion, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> was and his ex, his ex said it was uh, carefully cultivated. Mm. It's like a Boris Johnson yeah. Yeah. shaggy mm. haircut. Yeah. Um, but I think since we're embracing complexity, I think we absolutely have to acknowledge that uh, he can have been an uber nerd uh, and a criminal at once. And, and uh, sorry, I, I know this from personal experience that I'm not an uber nerd, but I did get a speeding ticket recently in Edinburgh, which was an innocent mistake. And I'm now, having failed to pay the fine on time twice, a criminal suspect. I'm going to be prosecuted by the... And and, And I've in some sympathy for you, Charles. Yeah, and I feel that is, on a small scale, what what happened to him. Uh, It doesn't diminish... It doesn't diminish... In the slightest, his eventual criminality, and I expect to get it with both barrels from the the, the, the least true and, <laughs> and effective <laughs> metaphor in use in a while. Basha, thank you for Sam Bankman-Fried. Let's take a moment and then come to Ian and migration. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ian, the funny thing, thinking about your suggestion of a story that should lead the news, is that for about 10 years it did. Immigration was a story in one form or other, which, you know, from the late noughts through, as you say, to Brexit, was a driver of all political debate. Not all, but a good deal of it. So what's happened with migration? Well, it's interesting that the survey that came out on Friday um, suggests that the mood is very, very different despite their record numbers. Um, And I think what's happening is people are seeing it in the UK in their daily lives. They're seeing the hospital waiting lists and the shortage of nurses and doctors. They're seeing it when they go to restaurants that they can't get service or that places are having, you know, the restaurant next to my house in Oxford closes now uh, a day a week because they can't get a chef. People are seeing it the shortage of of workers um, in their daily lives on the one hand. I think that's been very powerful and so people are changing their views uh, and they're getting it. Uh, And the other is that a lot of the new immigrants have felt more like them. It's been a lot of Ukrainians, uh, a lot of 
people who come from Hong Kong uh, who are entrepreneurs and very uh, dynamic. And I think people are also feeling more comfortable uh, with that. Interestingly enough, the numbers, the composition of of who these uh, immigrants are and the migrants are has changed dramatically. There's a net outflow of Europeans from Britain now. Ian, I don't know whether you heard, we do a podcast in which we ask John Curtis and Rachel Wolfe to try and understand one big trend in politics. It's called Trendy. Uh, They are, of course, very trendy. And the idea is to try and answer a what's the deal with question, what's the deal with. We did university education. Last week, we did immigration. If you heard it, one of the things that's striking is, as you say, not just the extent to which it's change, but the way in which people are no longer thinking about numbers, but they're thinking about types. Uh, I thought, by the way, the interview you did um, with Madeleine Sumption of the Oxford Migration Observatory was great and encouraged people to listen to that. Uh, I think I think it's largely politics because the numbers are still very small uh, on the small boats. I think it's because... Um, the the way it's been weaponized as a, as a political weapon, it's obviously part of the Brexit story. The French aren't stopping these people coming. Uh, and that's another irony of, of Brexit is that there'd be much more effective collaboration uh, if, if they were. It's very visible. It's very tragic. I mean, people are dying and not everyone's making it across. Uh, and um, and it's part of, you know, Sunak uh, and his predecessors have made it one of their... Po- political priorities that they're going to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So they've set it up uh, as something that has to be dealt with. And that means eyes are on it. Yeah. Um, and if both their political opponents want him to fail. Um, and uh, they're not going to succeed. So I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really uh, the way it's been set up. And of course, if you look at the overall numbers, the UK's acceptance of refugees is very, very low compared to uh, historical, as well as to European and other countries. Basha, what do you think? Well, as the daughter of a Polish immigrant, I it's interesting. I think my mum wouldn't feel it too revealing if I was to say that, you know, her sort of, she's been here since the 1980s. And I think she feels politically so alienated at the moment and self-conscious. But, but in terms of community, in terms of being a Londoner, She's never felt more integrated. So there is a gap, I think, between and perhaps exactly what this poll is 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 showing is that this is a political narrative. And it makes me think, well, then what is the sort of what what are the nasty party top trumps that that the likes of Suella Braverman are drawing on? You know, the sort of the hate marches, homelessness as a lifestyle immigration and small boats being this sort of coming siege or I can't remember the, na- the the exact terminology she used but this very inflammatory language what is is the base that they're playing to as big as they think it is and is it going to be politically meaningful in you know within the next year when we're likely to have an election I'd, I'm curious what you think yeah I think well the survey the British public has been very anti-immigrant. Uh, so I think this was something in the run-up to Brexit that was very, very important. But what I find fascinating is the shift in attitudes. Um, we now one of the most welcoming <laughs> surveys suggests. I mean, these numbers are quite astounding. 60% saying that immigration was very, pos- very positive for the UK. I mean, this is a complete swing from 
what it was before. And how uh, much do you think is rooted in the NHS? I think it's. I think the NHS is a part of it, but there's a general sense that we, you know, the fertility rate in the UK is like 1.5. We have a rapidly aging population, and that's not going to change. So the issue of the future is how do we cope with a rapidly aging population? Who's going to be the workers? Who's going to pay tax? Who's going to look after the elderly? And the only answer is immigrants. Charles, given what Ian's saying about the essentially flip on public perceptions around migration, what does that mean, do you think, in terms of Brexit? <laughs> It means that we need to grasp this and (laughs) use the real words which mean real things and talk about rejoin because everything else is just just silly. Um, uh, I think, no, I I think the the headline number, 600,000, let's remember that is six times the tens of thousands maximum that the Tories themselves set up as a totally arbitrary threshold. Turns out that meant nothing. 600,000 means nothing. 70-odd people are in favour of uh, uh, immigration, it turns out. Now, I just... uh, Of the two reasons that you proposed, Ian, to account for this, the lived experience, people, what people see in their daily lives, and the new immigrants feeling more like them... It seems to me that the first of those must be the most important one. That's the kind of brute pocketbook factor, isn't it? Uh, not least because, of course, the, the surge in immigration that led to Brexit in the first place was, if we're talking in crass terms, of people who look pretty much like us. They were almost all from, from Eastern, Eastern Europe. Europe. Yeah. Um, so I'm, it's uplifting in the end because I think it, the overall message is we're actually not too bothered whether people look like us or not, so long as they help. I was just to say, it looked like us, not necessarily the listeners of this podcast, not necessarily people who live in the country, but like a majority of people who historically were very anti-immigration. I think there is something also that's fundamentally shifted in Mm -hmm. the way in which the UK is and sees itself in this, which I think is important. Mm. Um, Ian, just so you know, the way this works is you're not allowed to double down on your own story. (laughs) You have to choose (laughs) one of the others. Basha, you go first. What would you lead on? Um, because it is an urgent and pressing question about the coming weekend, I would lead on whether these marches will be allowed to go ahead. Um, but I would, I think I would lead on that while also making a kind of bigger point about free speech, what these marches are for, what their expressions of, what Armistice Day and Remembrance Sunday is all about. Um, and I would try and tie all those things together. Ian? Yeah, I think it raises really fundamental questions and I would also lead on that. Charles? I would lead with the new mood on immigration, people ahead of politicians, as they so often are, tremendously important, tremendously uplifting. Well, if I think you could lead on any of them. They're all really interesting. I would really want to lead on migration. And then I know that by the time I came to see the running order or the layout of the page, or, you know, the look of the uh, website, I'd say, actually, you know what, we've got to do protest because if politicians conspire to ban it, it's a real moment in terms of freedom of expression and dissent. And if it goes ahead, it's also a statement about system working and about the role of the police in 
in ensuring public order, and also civilized disagreement in this country at a time when the disagreement is deep. So I think you lead on protest. I would take uh, your story, Ian, second, because I think it's got so many consequences. It's got all the political consequences we just sort of touched upon, but it's also got real economy consequences, real community consequences we haven't probably understood more deeply. And actually, I think the truth about the Sam Bankman-Fried story is I would like a kind of Michael Lewis too. Once the whole trial has happened, actually the dynamics of those relationships, not least mother and father and son, Sam Bankman-Fried and ex-girlfriend, just the personal loyalties and betrayals, hopes and uh, sadnesses of that. It's just an incredible story. So I suppose that's the way I'd run things. Giles, Basher, thank you. Ian, thank you very much. We're going to end with former President Barack Obama speaking at a live event for those brilliant people at Pod Save America. You may have heard it. If you haven't, take a few minutes to listen. It's getting a lot of pickup, as you can imagine, over the course of the weekend. Here's Obama reflecting on the situation in Gaza. If there's any chance of us being able to act constructively to do something, it will require an admission of complexity and maintaining what on the surface may seem contradictory ideas, that, that what Hamas did was horrific and there's no justification for it. And what is also true is that the occupation and what's happening to Palestinians is, is unbearable. And what is also true is that there is a history of the Jewish people that may be dismissed unless your grandparents or your great-grandparents or your uncle or your aunt tell you stories about the madness of anti-Semitism. And what is true is that there are people right now who are dying who have nothing to do with what Hamas did. And what is true, right? I mean, we can go on for a while. And the problem with the social media and trying to TikTok activism and trying to debate this on that is you can't speak the truth. You can pretend to speak the truth. You can speak one side of the truth. And in some cases, you can try to maintain your moral innocence, but that won't solve the problem. And so if you want to solve the problem, then you have to take in the whole truth. And you then have to admit nobody's hands are clean that all of us are complicit to some degree I look at this and I think back what could I have done during my presidency to move this forward as hard as I tried I've got the scars to prove it but there's a part of me that's still saying well was there something else I could have done that's the conversation we should be having. Not just looking backwards, but looking forward. And, and that can't happen if we are confining ourselves to our outrage. I would rather see you out there 
talking to people, including people who you disagree with, if you genuinely want to change this, then you've got to figure out how to speak to somebody on the other side and listen to them and understand what they are talking about and not, and not dismiss it. Because you can't save that child without their help. Not in this situation. Tortoise. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.